So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. As you know, I really like to blend the insights from incredibly diverse champions in this show, whether it's from business, sports, the performing arts or academia. This is just a quick reminder that all the insights that I weave into the show come from our pioneering digital coaching experience that features over a hundred of these world-class thinkers and performers sharing their advice in short video formats with toolkits to boost your resilience, well-being and fast-track your success in your career. I know hundreds of listeners to the show have activated their free months membership inside our members club. Uh, But here's a quick reminder, if you haven't, that if you go to sportingedge.com and select the members club option and then when you set up your personal account and use the code podcast100 in the checkout, then you'll be into that amazing global community free of charge and uh, you can use these micro lessons on your phone or you can use them to kick off a Zoom meeting. Uh, and let's be honest, we could all do with a sprinkle of inspiration in our team meetings at the moment. So today we'll be hearing from three brilliant strategic minds as we explore our responsibility to create a more sustainable approach in our organisations. It seems very topical at the moment. MIT Sloan's research said that although 90% of executives think sustainability is important, only 60% of companies have a sustainability strategy. And this shows there's a massive gap between intention and action. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons COP26 uh, is getting challenged over this week to try and make some big impact as the politicians and, and world leaders come out. So whether you've got your own business, you work in pro sport or you're part of a large corporate group, then uh, I really hope these insights get you thinking. Here's a taster of what's to come. I think it's really important for leaders today to see themselves as ethical and moral leaders, as custodians of the future. And one of the reasons is increasingly your younger employees will absolutely demand it. And so that charismatic leader that we have as a stereotype actually isn't the most effective leader. And often they leave a vacuum in their wake when they uh, step down from that podium. So one day you're competing, one day you're collaborating, and you've got to be comfortable with that. So 80% of the time I think of the future is collaboration. 20% is about competing to win. That 20% is really important. 
because you'll still need that stimulation drive in the marketplace. Well, when a leader feels the passion and, and has the long-term perspective, but is in, trapped in a short-term oriented system, that's really tough. But there are ways to influence that system and to influence your stakeholders. The businesses that win in the future do one simple thing. They provide their customers with products and services that are brilliant for them. Great tasting food, great looking clothing, great moving car, but are also better for people and planet at the same time. Before we dive into the show, I just wanted to thank you if you're one of the kind listeners who's left a five-star rating or review in the last week. You've really boosted us up the charts in places as diverse as Botswana, Malaysia, Switzerland and Sri Lanka. So thank you so much for tapping the five stars. It's much appreciated. The great pause of the last few years has caused a massive period of reflection. But we need to make sure that we emerge from the pandemic smarter rather than just recreating what we had before. I've been facilitating a range of senior leadership away days across a range of business sectors recently. And one of the key discussion points seems to be about how we define success in our organisations. Is it just money, status and material possessions? Or do we need to start thinking longer term about the well-being across our organisation, the strength of our partnerships and our purpose. The second group seem to be nice to have, but capitalism has always told us that it's dog-eat-dog and profit is always bigger than purpose. Well, I think we're at an inflection point where economic, social and environmental forces are colliding to make a deafening bang that simply can't be ignored. With COP26 in progress, the world's leaders are meeting to create this future blueprint. It'll be interesting to see firstly what commitments come out of it and secondly whether those who promise them actually deliver them to ensure this isn't a cop out. I caught up with Tammy Erickson, a leading professor at London Business School, to understand her thoughts on the future of leadership and her message was pretty clear. I think it's really important for leaders today to see themselves as ethical and moral leaders, as custodians of the future. And one of the reasons is increasingly your younger employees will absolutely demand it. Uh, the youngest generation today, people who haven't necessarily quite gotten into the workforce, kind of 20 and under, were very much influenced by the financial crises that we saw in the late 2000s. Uh, they know all about things like, or they've heard about things like Greek debt and uh, economic, uh, you know, catastrophes and so forth. They don't necessarily understand it, but they know it's something the world faces. They also know that um, there are tremendous environmental challenges. They probably know more about carbon and water and energy and so forth than, than most adults do. And they worry about those things. When I do research with kids who are, say, 13 to 15, they tell me today their number two, their top two concerns are the economy and the environment. And when I ask them what they think will be the biggest problems that they will have to face when they become leaders, they say the economy and the environment. They don't think we're going to get it together. They don't trust us to fix it. But I can absolutely certain that they're going to hold their leaders responsible for behaviors that are consistent with those values. They don't want to work for organizations that are fiscally 
questionable. They want to work for organizations they can feel proud of. And they want to work for organizations that take the environment seriously and have a serious commitment to doing their share uh, to conserving the resources we have. So this is the future workforce already having strong opinions on what needs to be done and what needs to be changed. Nearly half, 49% of a Gen Z survey by Deloitte said that their personal ethics have played a role in their career choice. So we're going to find a war on talent will gravitate towards businesses with more purpose and more sustainability being delivered rather than just spoken about. But the people who created the system and the negative byproducts are either not listening, not moving fast enough, or struggling to untangle the red tape and bureaucracy of this industrial machine that's come from the last generation. So how can we all start to play our part as parents, as leaders and as moral citizens? These are some of the issues that we're going to be tackling today. If we're going to tackle some of these bigger issues, we're going to need a new definition of success. One that's not just based on that smash and grab mentality that's seen so many corporate scandals in recent years, where individuals received huge bonuses for short-term targets, which in many cases cut ethical or environmental corners. Mike Barry is a thought leader in sustainable change, a pioneer of green business in the corporate world. He's helped to develop, launch and implement Marks and Spencer's groundbreaking sustainability programme, Plan A. It was called that because there's no plan B for the one world we live in. In 10 years, his Plan A project delivered £750 million of net business benefit and won 230 awards. I wanted to learn more about this area so I could share interviews like Mike's with our members to help them to build more sustainable organisations. Mike explains how leaders need to reframe their thinking and strategy in this next phase. I mean, the biggest barrier to sustainable business change of the last decade has been short-termism. Just this constant preoccupation with making an impact in terms of the pound sign, or the dollar sign, or the euro sign. That's been the preoccupation of people. I understand why, you know, that's, that's what capitalism does so very, very well. But we need to understand in a shifting society, a shifting planet that's got an angry response to the way that we're treating the climate and, and nature, we have to be broader in terms of how we define impact. The businesses that win in the future do one simple thing. They provide their customers with products and services that are brilliant for them, great tasting food, great looking clothing, great moving car, but are also better for people and planet at the same time. And we're a pair of Allbirds trainers at the moment, one of the most sustainable trainers out there in the marketplace. Brilliant life cycle assessment to tell me that. But you know what, for a man of a certain age, the comfiest shoe I've ever worn, and my kids tell me they're reasonably stylish as well. Everybody wins. I get a great product, but I also feel good that it's protecting the planet. Tesla cars. It's a fantastic environmental story compared to a dirty old diesel. But you know what, it's high performance, it's aspirational, it's something that people want to drive around. Plant-based diet has taken off, not because people are grudgingly eating cardboard food because it's better for the planet. They're eating great tasting food that's interesting, it's something to explore, and it's better for the planet. That's what we're looking for in the future, where economic success for the business, for the, for the owner, and for planet and society meet together. That's success. Mike's point broadens our perspective on both what we should demand from the shops and service providers we currently buy from, 
and maybe searching for new brands like Allbirds sneakers that are already leading the way in sustainability. So you may be an entrepreneur listening in to this thinking that my business is small and we're creating these purpose-driven ethical products and designing the business to be as sustainable as possible from the outset. Well, in a way, this is a luxury, being small enough and being able to go straight for that new market or that new customer preference. But I also know we've got a large number of corporate CEOs and senior execs in global businesses listening to the podcast. So it's harder to balance those short-term results to keep the business going with all the cost base while trying to remodel the business for the long term. Another expert that I interviewed in this space is Professor Wayne Visser, who's the Chair of Sustainable Transformation at Antwerp Business School, a Fellow of Cambridge University and a leading thinker and an author in the field of sustainability and systems thinking. His work's taken him to over 77 countries, working with over 150 clients, ranging from Coca-Cola, Dell, DHL, HSBC and the United Nations Environment Programme. I asked him how leaders can make this strategic shift when their business model was set up for a different approach in a previous era. Well, when a leader feels the passion and and has the long-term perspective but is trapped in a short-term oriented system, that's really tough. But there are ways to influence that system and to influence your stakeholders. And I think one of the most effective ways is to look for examples of others who've been successful and had that long-term or that purpose-driven approach. And an example here in, in business could be the difference between Jack Welsh, when he was CEO of General Electric, and Jeff Immelt, who took over from him. Jack Welsh was all about short-term profits, win at all costs, uh, you have to be one or two in your industry or we shut you down. And Jeff Immelt said, well, the world has changed and what it's really looking for now are big solutions to big problems. And so Immelt said, well, we need to invest now in two areas, environmental solutions and health solutions. And for example, in the environmental area, they had something called eco-imagination and they invested $12 billion. And the shareholders got really nervous because, you know, that's a lot of money and the short-term performance wasn't there for a few years after he took over. But he really asked them to be patient. And, you know, within a few years, those businesses, the environmental technology business, for example, had turned turned into $160 billion business. So the returns were there. And so for leaders in that situation where they're facing the pressure of short-termism, it helps to have those examples of others who've, who've been through that fire and come out the other end. But there is a second point, which is that when you are purpose-driven, there are short-term benefits as well. In fact, when people are buying into that vision that you have, that sense of having some meaning in your work or in, in your life, they actually perform better. You see what Abraham Maslow might call peak performance. Uh, and so they're more loyal, they're more likely to put in the effort, they're more productive. And these are short-term benefits. And we're getting better and better at quantifying that now. This links back to Tammy Erickson's point about the talent of the future gravitating towards purpose-driven ethical businesses who take their environmental impact incredibly seriously. 
the short term benefit is that we attract the best talent into our organisations because they can see their values reflected in the change. And then we also get to see the benefit of the strategy once it gathers momentum. So part of this shift is having the courage to make the move. And then the second one is the ability to unlock the talent in our organisation to be able to create this new strategy and execute it. I was interested to see if Wayne's research had pulled out any core characteristics from the champions of sustainability that we could learn from. And his answer was fascinating. Yeah, well, a leader for sustainability or what we sometimes call a purpose-inspired leader does have certain characteristics. We've researched this at Cambridge University and uh, we come up with things like they, they really are systemic in their thinking, meaning they understand their context and the interconnections between things. They are empathetic, they have high emotional intelligence. Uh, this is quite different actually to what many CEOs are. In fact, one of the CEOs we interviewed said most, most corporate leaders are basically egomaniacs and what we need is, is really the opposite. It's what Jim Collins called, calls quiet leaders uh, who enable through others. So that's another characteristic is that uh, leaders for sustainability and for purpose, they are inclusive, they are participative, they create success through others. They don't want to be the ones on the podium or in the media. Uh, and so that charismatic leader that we have as a stereotype actually isn't the most effective leader. And often they leave a vacuum in their wake when they uh, step down from that podium. So we do need to pay attention to that. They need to be visionary. I mean, they need to create a compelling view of the future that people want to buy into. I mean, why is it that Elon Musk has created a company, Tesla, that produces a hundred times less cars than General Motors, for example, and is valued higher than General Motors? It's because people believe in the future that they are chasing and, and creating. So that visionary uh, perspectives are really important. And then courage is, is another one linked to vision. They really need to be bold. So today, really, the difference between the leaders and the laggards uh, is, I, I sometimes say, a two-part test. It's admission and ambition. Admission, do they admit the scale of the challenges and that they're complicit in those challenges? Uh, but then ambition, are they prepared to set those really bold targets and objectives which will inspire people? The example of Interface, Ray Anderson in 1995 when he set their mission zero to get to the zero negative impact on the environment. No other company has ever done that. They didn't know how they would get there, but they knew that the ambition would result in innovation. And in 2020, 25 years later, they got pretty close. So uh, that's, that's the role of ambition. Uh, final characteristic we really saw was long-term uh, orientation, uh, which we've talked about a little bit about already. Difficult to do, but absolutely uh, imperative now. Uh, in fact, the McKinsey study suggests that the long-term oriented companies compared to the short term over the last 15 years have created a trillion dollars of value and uh, will create another three trillion on current trends. There are so many elements here. And what I like about Wayne's interview is that he's got loads of case studies and statistics to back up what he's saying. There are a few things to reflect on from this individual insight about the characteristics 
that the sustainable leaders share. So let's have a look at them in a bit more depth. So they display this systemic thinking. They understand the interconnections and the knock-on effects of their decisions. Yes, we could buy these raw materials cheaper from this particular factory somewhere in the world, but they might be coming from an unethical source and involving child labour, for example. We rarely make decisions in isolation, so considering the wider ramifications of our business decisions is so important. What are the ethics and the environmental values of our suppliers and our partners? Have we got a score chart for that? And is it something that we'd select or drop people for? That ability to be empathic, that high EQ with no egomaniacs, they enable through others. I love that idea of that long-term success being a team sport, not an iconic individual sort of glory parade. We need to balance the confidence that we need to lead with the warmth to bring other people into the adventure and the journey with us. They're inclusive, they're participative, and they enable everyone in the organisation to bring solutions. That's about unlocking this intellectual creativity and diversity in the organisation to bring their best ideas, to contribute to the innovation and to challenge the status quo, to improve things. You don't have to just be the CEO to do that. You can have anyone right through the organisation giving you feedback and improving things. They're visionary. They've got that ability to tell stories and build strategies together. Tesla isn't just predicting the future. Anyone can do that. They're actually creating the future. We all know there needs to be a shift away from carbon fuels, but who's leading the way in battery technology and telecoms capacity that we need to bring these things to reality? These visionary leaders are able to show us this new bright future, but also show us the first steps to achieving it. Now, it may not be obvious how you deliver that whole process, but as these iterative processes develop, we'll find a way to be successful, we'll innovate and we'll experiment and the truth will reveal itself later down the line. So that long-term orientation is also really key. Can we be patient when the pressure's on? This is a constant discussion point when I work with the senior football managers. They dream of building a culture and the owners give them this uh, job there's few in rotation at the moment, but then they've got to win on Saturday and the impatience is so high. So the key is that they're able to influence those senior stakeholders around them to have the same long term perspective and they can buy into that vision, which builds a little bit more patience and tolerance together. So we need that long term orientation. So that's point that Wayne made about admission. Do we admit the scale of the issue and do we take responsibility for our part in solving it? That's a pretty big question to think on. So let's go back to Mike Barry with another insight about how we move from this intention and move into execution. So the key to doing this is just three simple questions. The why, the what, the how. The why is strategy. Why do I need to become more sustainable? And that's about the insight, the shifting needs of society, the planet, regulators, investors, all asking you as a business to deliver economic outcomes, but social environmental as well. So what's the strategy? How do I win in that new marketplace? The second thing is the what. What do you commit to do to become sustainable? And this is where most people run straight away. I need a climate target, a waste target, a water target, human rights target. Of course you do. But it's not the be all and end all. 
And beneath those targets, you need a governance system to make sure they're actually delivered, to make sure that internally every year you get 3% or 5% or 10% better. And then externally, you're transparent. Here's my report, nothing to hide, something's worked, something's didn't. I'm being honest and open with you. That's the what. And then the how. Everybody forgets the how. How do I integrate sustainability to everything I do in a business? With my customers, my colleagues, my suppliers, my business partners, with my regulators, with investors, with business partnerships for change across the economy where I can't do something on my own. And that's all about human engagement. So the why, the what, the how is how you change your business. So again, there's so much insight here to dive into the why. There's no doubt the pandemic has accelerated a move to digital and ramped up the urgency to limit the negative environmental impact we're having. It's almost like it took this massive epidemic to show us how fragile we are. And depending on your industry, there'll be lots of different reasons for increasing sustainable practice, whether it's to avoid fines, to attract funding, or to satisfy customers' unmet needs. But we can all agree that it makes moral sense. And as things develop, it will make even greater financial sense for our businesses to move this way. I saw some stats that the renewable energy market is expected to reach $2.15 trillion by 2025. In the what, we can explore targets and governance. What gets measured gets changed. And there's been a big rise in what they call ESG investments, where companies are given a score for their collective efforts towards better environmental, social and governance practices. Then we've got the how, every touch point with stakeholders and across business. I met an entrepreneur a few weeks back who set up a business where you can actually score your business for carbon and sustainability. And you could see how this could become a new way of choosing suppliers and partners in the future. If you've got a choice between two factories, you'll choose the one with lower emissions rating because that has a knock-on impact on lowering your score as well. So you can see that these new independent assessors checking these scores will be absolutely vital to make sure that it's all transparent and truthful. I also read that even our online advertising banners and campaigns leave a CO2 footprint as everyone needs the storage of data, the electricity, the phones, I'd never really considered it before, but it's pretty obvious when you think about it that our websites, our campaigns, they all need hardware, software, storage to create. And that's even before the 100,000 people have clicked it and explored and interacted with our products. I'm conscious that we're getting into some pretty big and unwieldy topics here, but my passion is for exploring the mindset and leadership that we all need to thrive in the years ahead. And this topic is really high on the agenda. I can't cover all the content here, but hopefully it's a thought-provoking dog walk or run where you're experiencing the content today. Wayne Visser spoke about the humility and ability to think beyond the four walls of your organisation, to be a system thinker, and that's a great concept wherever we work, to think about the knock-on impacts of our actions. Later in our interview, Mike Barry raised another interesting approach which builds on this, and hints at the way organisations can both tackle big global issues and remain hyper-competitive in their key areas. There's a great change coming for leadership in the next decade. The last 20 years has been about winning and winning alone. You know, beat my competition. The future's about absolutely doing that, but collaborating as well. Let me give you a practical example. Let me talk about the shift from a meat-based diet to a plant-based one. 
On the surface and on the shelves, Marks and & Spencer and Tesco's are trying to beat each other. They both want to sell the most delicious plant-based alternative alongside their meat offer to excite the customer to win market share. Brilliant. Let's compete to deliver the best product. Behind the scenes, Marks and & Spencer and Tesco's are looking at each other and saying, but we both use soy in our existing animal feed supply chains to create the meat that we sell to our customers. Neither of us can create a unique Marks and & Spencer and Tesco supply chain that's perfect and different from everybody else's. We have to collaborate to work with the Brazilian government, the world's biggest commodity producers, the shippers that bring it to the marketplace, the animal feed con converters in Europe. Marks and & Spencer and Tesco, big competitors, have to work together. So one day you're competing, one day you're collaborating, and you've got to be comfortable with that. So 80% of the time I think of the future is collaboration, 20% is about competing to win. That 20% is really important because you'll still need that stimulation drive in the marketplace. Marks and Spencer, Walmart and Tesco's are all in a cutthroat battle for that share of our shopping budgets. So they've been very focused, ruthlessly focused on keeping the costs low. When one of them tries to source a more expensive supplier, they'd need a rapid shift in consumer loyalty to justify that extra cost and it probably wouldn't happen straight away. But for example, with palm oil, it's one of the major causes of deforestation in the world with thousands of square miles of indigenous rainforest flattened to create this monocrop which is used in cooking ingredients and cosmetics. If all the major supermarket brands challenged that, it would have an impact, whereas they couldn't make that difference alone. The worst examples of the old business model was profit at all costs. So now we're looking for success in terms of society, the economy and the environment. We need to think where we can compete on these micro products and where we can collaborate on the macro issues like supply chain. So it's a great thought-provoking question for us to think about who we can collaborate with to tackle some of the big issues around pollution, supply chain or recycling in our own networks. To bring this back to a personal level, we can all make a difference through the way we shop. And Mike Barry shares another great example of the growth of the circular economy. So the circular economy, again, is going to be really important next decade. And let me just give you two examples why. I mean, let's look at plastics first. Ubiquitous, important, the cheap, the flexible, the lightweight. There's a reason why we all use them. But 8 million tonnes of plastics getting into the oceans every year is pollution. Now, 8 million tonnes doesn't sound that much. Plastic doesn't weigh that much. That's trillions of items of plastic that are accumulating in the oceans. We can't carry on like that. We have to create a circular approach to plastics. We use it, it goes out there, you know that at home you can recycle it, it will be brought back and reused. At the moment, only 8% of the plastics on the planet are actually used like that. That's bonkers. And if the plastics industry and those that use it can't sort themselves out, they'll be taxed or regulated out of existence. We need to get to numbers 50, 60, 70, 80%, not 8%. And then the other example is fashion. Last year, the world consumed before the pandemic 130 billion pieces of clothing and shoes. Now, most of it was worn for a little bit and either sets in a wardrobe never to be used again or is thrown away. Tiny amount is recycled or resold. And everybody was saying, woe is me, how do we deal with that? Some clever innovators then created resale platforms where you now, as a kid, you can go on and say, well, I've worn this once, I'm a bit bored with it, but I'm going to throw it away, I'll resell it for a couple of quid so I can buy something new. Great, so the clothing lives, you get some money. These resale platforms are redefining um, fashion retail. People who just thought it was only ever about selling something once are missing out on both the economic opportunity of selling it again 
and the data that comes from that. Because the data tells you what's reselling at what price. Great, I should be selling more of that in the first place. It's great insight. So the businesses that build these resale platforms, and people have estimated it's gonna be worth, go from being worth about $25 billion a year today to about $55 billion a year within five years. So it's gonna double in size the resale market. That's circular disruption. It's good for the planet, but it's fundamentally gonna create winners and losers in the fashion marketplace as well. Again, this makes so much sense, but would a fashion brand 10 years ago have been thinking about their consumers reselling or recycling their garments to second and third hand consumers? Or would they have just been focused on selling as much as possible of the next season's fashion range? It's another example of looking beyond our current product life cycle and those quarterly profits that we focus on. And it can either create new commercial opportunities or create a new opportunity to build a long-term relationship with our clients. I saw some research from Nielsen that said that 66% of consumers would pay more for products that come from a sustainable business. So it doesn't have to be all about providing the most cost-effective and cheapest prices. I think I'd agree with that. And we have a pretty dynamic family life with two teenagers, but we're definitely seeing a bit of a shift in our consumption and consideration of what we buy and why. One example is that for the last few years, we've definitely bought lots more birthday and Christmas gifts, which are experiences for people rather than more plastic tat that's wrapped in more plastic packaging. I think experiences are a great way to go and they're often more memorable and definitely can be better for the environment. That is, of course, you've got a day flying an old Spitfire or demolishing a forest with a, an old diesel tank. But I think experiences are definitely a great way to go this Christmas if you're considering it. I'm certainly not an eco-warrior, but I do want to play my part. And I also want to ensure that our business creates a solid ethical core. So that's why I've broadened our content in the Sporting Edge Library to these world-class leadership thinkers who can challenge us to broaden our view of success. It's definitely got me thinking about questions that I can ask after researching the interviews of Wayne, Tammy and Mike. So questions I might ask myself are, do I really need this thing that I'm about to buy? How much damage is buying this having on the environment? And is there a lower impact alternative? And also then that longer term view of how will this decision or this product be in, in five to 10 years time? By giving more conscious consideration to these purchases and business decisions, I really hope that it'll keep me on the right path more often than not. I'm sure there'll be lots of experts listening who are working at the forefront of these major transformations. In fact, one of our clients is a major energy company that's completely remodeled their whole business and it's been absolutely fascinating to watch. Leading change at this scale is daunting, but it's absolutely vital. And when we apply all our brains with all our diverse thoughts and backgrounds to some of these big areas of innovation, like renewable energy, halting deforestation or limiting pollution, amazing things can happen. I'm really curious and, and want to learn loads in this space. So if anyone's got any interesting research or case studies of businesses that are leading the way in sustainability, then do drop me a note on LinkedIn. I'd love to learn more. And if you're a sports coach or teacher or entrepreneur and these things aren't quite so relevant, then I really hope you found today's insights thought-provoking at least and that 
you know, you're starting to think about our individual responsibility because it's definitely something that we've all got to take accountability for. And if you want to learn more and watch over three hours of content from Wayne, Tammy and Mike, then you can activate your account in our members club by visiting sportingedge.com and use the code podcast100 at the checkout. You'll get a free month's access to the whole library with over 100 experts and it's an incredible personal and professional development resource and there's no catch. If at the end of that free month you'd like to stay with us, then you can choose that. The fee is £25 per person per month plus VAT. But if you don't want to, that's also fine. We've got an amazing community building and it's a really safe space to learn about mindset, leadership and teamwork. So I'd love to welcome you inside that members club at sportingedge.com. And we'll be diving back into some more sports themed content in the weeks ahead. So until then, thanks so much for spending this time with us and considering these massive issues and uh, I hope you get a chance to share the episode with any leaders that you think will enjoy it. Thanks so much and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. 